almost alone. Why are we stopping, Mr. Carson? You suspect there might be some danger ahead? Indians, maybe? Sue? Kit glanced over his shoulder. Reverend William Pritchard was watching him with worried eyes. Pritchard wore dark woolen trousers and a white cotton shirt open at the throat and sweat-stained. His black frock coat was tied behind his saddle along with his saddlebags. A pair of mules carried all of the preacher's earthly possessions, diamond-hitched to Aparejo pack saddles. Kit knew little of the man, except that he was a widower with a son living in Santa Fe. He had come to preaching late in his life, having spent the better part of twenty years a physician and surgeon back east. Sue? Not likely, not here. Bannock, maybe. Snake, too. Some Nez Pierce and Blackfoot. But no Sioux. When I came north with Mr. Cason, he was always on the lookout for Comanches or Arapaho or Sioux. Plenty of them Injuns all up and down the eastern side of these here shining mountains, and Mr. Cason knows his business, but... Now we're too far north for the Comanche, too far west for Sioux and Arapaho, Reverend. Kit returned his view to the tracks in the ground next to the horse's hooves. The wheel ruts from Eliza and Henry Spaulding's and Narcissa and Marcus Whitman's wagons were plain enough. He had had no trouble following them since leaving the campgrounds of the yearly rendezvous earlier that week. Now there was a new set of tracks and these were what had caught his eye and brought a sudden wary tingle to his spine. Pony tracks, unshod, and the riders of those unshod ponies had by chance happened upon the Oregon-bound missionaries and were now trailing them. The missionaries were being guided to Oregon under the seasoned hand of Thomas McKay. He was the son of Alexander McKay, one of the Astorian partners and son-in-law of John McLaughlin, the Hudson's Bay Company factor at Fort Vancouver. McKay had established Fort Boise a few years before, and Kit had had a few business dealings with the man and trusted him. McKay was quick as a mountain lion and smart as an old hoot owl. When it came to the ways of the Indians, Thomas McKay knew which way the stick floated and there was not a higher regard a man of the mountain could earn than that. The emigrants were in good hands, but just the same, there was no way McKay could know that a band of Indians had picked up his trail. Your friend Reverend Spaulding and the others are being followed. Pritchard's eyes rounded. So it is Indians, isn't it? The signs say maybe and maybe not. Plenty of white men ride unshod ponies this far from any blacksmith. But my gut tells me these riders are redskin. What tribe? Can't say yet. Could they be friendly? Kit looked back. Concern was deepening upon the preacher's sunburned face. They could be, but I wouldn't count on that being so, he said soberly. Then we must hurry on and warn them, Pritchard declared. Kit studied the long valley again. The tracks of the wagons and their followers headed straight across it, 
Kit pondered the matter. The trace was at least two days old, and he judged that if there was any danger, it would be ahead of them, not lying in wait among the trees that fringe this pleasant valley. At least he hoped so. What's that saying about fools rushing in? Pritchard frowned. They have to be warned. McKay has more mountain savvy than most men I know, especially when crossing Injun country. Kit kept his own deeper concerns private. Just the same, we'll pick up our pace some, Reverend. Checking the caps on the nipples of his rifle and pistols, he softly clucked his horse ahead, following the tracks down through the middle of the valley. They stayed on the tracks all that day. At one point, the riders had dismounted to water their animals in a small stream.